1: To find out if it's right for you.
2: Welcome to Murder Mile, a true crime podcast, an audio-guided walk featuring many of London's untold, unsolved, and long-forgotten murders, all set within and beyond the West End. Today's episode is about Hannah Brown, a hard-working, sweet-natured widow in the twilight years of her life, who was looking to settle down, set up a shop, and move to America with her loving husband-to-be. Every part of her dream came true. Only what she found wasn't happiness, but death. Murder Marley's research using the original police files It contains moments of satire, shock, and grisly details, and as a dramatization of the real events, it may also feature loud and realistic sounds, so that, no matter where you listen to this podcast, you'll feel like you're actually there. My name is Michael, I am your tour guide, and this is Murder Mile. Episode 111, The Scattered Remains of Hannah Brown. Today, I'm standing by the Maida Hill Tunnel, just off the Edgware Road, W2. Four blocks north of the seedy hotel where Agnes Mary Walsh met her demise at the hands of the sad-faced killer. Three blocks north of the odd suicide pact of Lieutenant Colonel Felix Sturber, one street northeast of the floating suitcase found to have been stuffed with the suffocated corpse of Martha Ligman, yep. and one street west of the unsolved and deeply troubling death of Amala de Vere Whelan, coming soon to Murder Mile. Situated within tooting distance of the dingy squalor of Paddington Station, running parallel with the busy roar of Edgware Road, and skirting the eastern edge of the last stretch of the Grand Union Canal is a series of long, elegant avenues comprising of opulent white-stoned villas for the seriously wealthy. As a former hunting ground known as Tibernia, around the 1830s, when construction began, although it was only one and a half miles from Marble Arch and the Tyburn Gallows, which marked the entrance to the city, this part of Maida Vale was still regarded as countryside. One of the few thoroughfares was Edgware Road, and just a few yards from the spot stood a toll booth called Pineapple Gate. This is a gentle canal-side walk, where couples drained of conversation, toss scraps of focaccia to disapproving ducks, sip a glass of house white as the trucks thunder by, drool over the houses no one could ever hope to buy, If they actually paid their taxes, and dream of living a better life in a bigger house, only stuck with the same old misery guts. But then again, that is love. By Christmas 1836, 50-year-old widow Hannah Brown had found happiness, love, and after years of hard work and heartache, she was about to fulfil her dreams which she truly deserved. She felt alive, whole, and complete. And yet, with her life cruelly cut short, her arms, legs, and head would be missing. As it was here, on Wednesday, the 28th of December, 1836, that the first piece of Hannah Brown was found and unveiled one of the most brutal murders in British history. There was never a lovelier lady than that of Hannah Brown, as said every single one of her friends and neighbours. Hannah Brown was born Hannah Gay in the spring of 1776. Raised in the rural peace of the market town of Wimondon in Norfolk, Hannah was the second eldest child to a schoolmaster and a seamstress, who blessed their children With a solid education, the skills to survive life, and more importantly, a level of politeness, decency, and a strong work ethic. Being a real mix of both parents, Hannah was a strong, stout woman who stood about 5 foot 8 inches tall. With a long pale face, short thick teeth, and brown hair right down to her waist, with a high chest strong limbs, and large hands. She was genteel, polite, and elegant like a lady, but with a man's physical strength. Described as friendly and warm, Hannah always had a song in her heart, a spring in her step, and no matter what, she'd be prepared for anything that life would throw at her. By the turn of the 1800s, Hannah was married. She was in love, happy, and although accepting of the cruel fact that she could never bear children, she had a loving husband and a happy future ahead. But barely a few years later, Hannah was alone, childless, and a widow, aged just 23. By the 1810s, Hannah had remarried. And once more, he was a good man who loved her dearly. But bad luck would strike again. And by the time that she was in her mid-thirties, she'd been widowed twice. As before, her friends and family rallied round. And with her grief dampened by a £400 inheritance, which would keep this smart frugal lady safe and secure for a good long while, She didn't need to remarry, but knowing that she loved to be loved, she worried that her love life was doomed forever. By her 40s, having moved to London's West End, Hannah earned her income as a housekeeper to Mr. Perrin, a hatter, and Mr. Oliver, an anchor maker. But keen to become her own boss, Hannah purchased a brand new mangle of a carpenter called Mr. Ward, on nearby Cheney Street and became a washerwoman, a physically demanding job which took skill and strength. But it wasn't just to earn an income, it was to get her nearer to her goal. In the parishes of Soho and Fitzrovia, Hannah was well-known, well-loved, and easy to spot owing to her distinctive look even if age had added a few wrinkles, a salt and pepper hue to her long hair, and in an accident with a fellow maid had left a tear in the lobe of her left ear when an earring was ripped out. She was a decent, kind, and staunchly sober woman who worked incredibly hard to save every penny so she could fulfill her dream of buying a little shop of her own to sell fruits and pastries. By the winter of 1836, the life of 50-year-old Hannah Brown was looking rather rosy. She was happy, healthy, and having fallen in love with a young widower, who loved her without question, had asked her to marry him on Christmas Day, and the two planned to emigrate to his farmstead in Canada. This was where she would spend the rest of her life. Only when the world was celebrating Christmas, Hannah was being hacked to pieces. Wednesday, the 28th of December, 1836, was a bitterly cold day. The wind was bitingly crisp, the canal was solid with ice, and a thick layer of snow speckled the frozen ground. So cold was the earth that the workmen in Tibernia had to wait to lay the pathways until the midday sun had softened the soil. At a little after 2pm, by the toll booth at Pineapple Gate, a builder called Robert Bond was returning to work when he spotted a four-foot-long by three-foot-wide paving slab propped against the wall of Canterbury Villas. It had been there for approximately four days. Only now, It was hiding a large hessian sack. With frosted breath, as Robert heaved the brown, coarsely woven bag, which was as big and bulky as a small sack of coal, a slight tearing ripped at its sticky base as the leaky red liquid from within had frozen the sack to the stone-cold floor, leaving a vivid pool of what was unmistakably blood. Alerting a policeman, P.C. Samuel Pegler arrived at the scene at 2.10pm, and when he held the lip of the sack, unwound its string cord held in place by several crudely poked eyelets, and as the wide mouth of the sack gaped open, he gasped, as inside he witnessed the aftermath of an act of pure evil. Pale, naked, and partially frozen, it was unmistakably a woman's body, only with no arms, no legs, and no head. It was just a torso. Being large-framed, loose-skinned, and high-breasted, her age was hard to fathom, but early fifties seemed about right. With no birthmarks, her identity was impossible to tell, and missing two-thirds of her body her cause of death was unknown. But whoever had hacked her to pieces had done so crudely by ripping jagged tears through her thighs, arms and neck. But as the old rusty blade snagged and stalled halfway through, with brute force, each bone was pressed and bent till it snapped like twigs, leaving five jagged sticks poking out of the tatty stumps of her corpse. Requisitioning a barrow, the body was carted to Paddington Police Station, where it was preserved in vinegar and kept along with the hessian sack and the wood shavings at its base. But as no one had reported a woman missing who matched this description, the unidentified torso at Pineapple Gate remained a mystery. In the months leading up to Christmas 1836, Hannah Brown's life was good. In fact, it was very good. Blessed with powerful arms, large hands and a solid work ethic, Hannah was a savvy woman who knew how to run a business well. With a new mangle, a warm fire and constant pots of boiling water on the stove, From the ground floor of 45 Union Street in Fitzrovia, she worked in the front parlour, lived in the back, and although frugal, she was always kind and elegant, with her sights on the little pastry shop. With her parents dead, her sisters back in Norfolk, and her goddaughter all grown up, Hannah's only family was her little brother William, and although they lived just one street apart, they rarely spoke. And yet, as a truly lovely lady, Hannah was never short of old friends, new pals, and now a male admirer. On an unspecified date, in October 1836, while her mangle was being repaired by the carpenter Mr. Ward on nearby Cheney Street, and she was ordering a hessian sack of wood shavings to stoke her fire, it was there that she first set eyes on a very dashing gentleman called James Greenacre. Being a charming 42-year-old businessman, with sorrowful eyes, a distinguished nose and a kind smile, whose curly brown hair and tatty sideburns were in dire need of a lady's finesse, although they looked an odd fit, as he was a few inches shorter, a good deal thinner and eight years younger than Hannah, the couple were instantly smitten, having found their soulmates with a lot in common. Equally being as unlucky in love, whereas Hannah had grieved by the graves of two husbands, living a short but hard life, James had lost three wives and had buried four of his seven children. And just like Hannah, although money could never replace a loved one, he was financially secure, having bought several houses in Camberwell, South London, and a 1,000-acre farm off Canada's Hudson Bay. Neither of them needed to remarry, but finding a kinship together, they both loved to be loved. Near the end of November 1836, James Greenacre proposed to Hannah Brown, and she accepted. As devout Catholics, they had their wedding bands published by the minister of St. Giles in the Fields Church and planned to have a little libation with a few friends next door of the Angel Public House when they were married at St. Giles on Christmas Day. So smitten was Hannah that although her plan was to sell off her mangle, pack up her clothes and wisely invest her inheritance in a little pastry shop in Fitzrovia, now she had a new dream. To pack up, to marry, to move to Canada with her beloved husband James, and to live the life that this wonderful woman truly deserved. On Wednesday, the 21st of December, four days before her nuptials, Hannah visited her brother William to inform him of her plans to emigrate. But for whatever reason, he wasn't invited to the wedding. On Thursday the 22nd of December, Hannah introduced James to her best friends, Mr. and Mrs. Davies. The conversation was cordial, the couple sat hand in hand on the sofa, and the Davises were ecstatic at the news that with no parents of her own, Hannah wanted Mr. Davies to give her away, and Mrs. Davies to be her bridesmaid. On the Christmas Eve of 1836, with the ground freshly sprinkled with a smattering of crisp snow, the festive smell of mulled wine and roast chestnuts teasing every sniffly nose, Hannah had finished packing up her life at 45 Union Street. At 12pm, Hannah called on Catherine Glass, a friend who lived on Windmill Street, to drop off an overnight bag and her wedding dress so she could spend, as tradition decrees, her last night of freedom away from her husband-to-be. At 3pm, wearing her black silk cloak, black boa and a distinctive white shawl, as well as two elegant pearl drop earrings, worn a little higher owing to an old tear in her left earlobe, James and the coachman loaded Hannah's three trunks onto a horse-drawn carriage and she left Union Street forever. By the next morning, Hannah was due to be married to the man that she loved. But instead, her cold dead corpse had been cruelly dismembered. James Greenacre was a lover and a liar. As a serial widower with three dead wives, all of whom he had met, hastily married, and were all older and wealthier than himself, each one, whether by disease, fever or accident, had died young and had left him as the sole beneficiary of their estates. And whereas Hannah had frugally saved the nest egg which she had been bequeathed. James liked to spend. He bought a pub in Woolwich, a house in West Ham, a terrace in Camberwell, and supposedly a large farm in Hudson Bay, although no one had ever seen it. Prone to dodgy deals, often dabbling in untaxed tea, he had fled to America with his wife and four children. But by August 1836, only he had returned to London. On an unspecified date, two months later, having overheard a carpenter called Mr. Ward chatting to a lovely but lonely lady who planned to purchase a little pastry shop with her £400 widow's inheritance, James was instantly smitten with Hannah. And whereas she loved to be loved, all he loved was her money. And to him, it didn't matter that he wasn't single. Four years earlier, whilst married to his third wife, as a serial philanderer, James also had a 35-year-old mistress called Sarah Gale. Together they had a son, and they planned to elope to Canada. He needed money, Hannah's money, and marriage was the key. Only something went horribly wrong. Late on Christmas Eve, as Mr. and Mrs. Davies picked up a cut of mutton for the post-wedding roast, they bumped into James on Tottenham Court Road. He was agitated, flushed, and barked, the wedding's Wedding's off, off. rambling on about how Hannah was debt-ridden, morally loose, and a drunk, as he barged by the aghast couple with a few borrowed tools under his arm, all tied up in a brown hessian sack. Six hours earlier, everything had started so well. As James loaded onto the horse-drawn carriage, the three heavy trunks full of Hannah's worldly possessions, such as some silks, pottery and trinkets, all of which he knew would fetch a pretty price, as well as a pair of pearl earrings, a gold pocket watch and details of her inheritance. And as they trotted out of Union Street for the very last time, James lovingly wrapped a warm shawl around her shoulders to shield his cash cow from the cold as the couple headed south. Over the next hour, as the carriage clip-clopped over the River Thames, they kissed and cuddled as James regaled Hannah with false hopes of what their new life together would be. Only the woman he wanted by his side was his mistress. At 5pm, the carriage pulled into Carpenter's Place in Camberwell, a tightly packed terrace of slightly dilapidated houses with broken bricks, shattered tiles and cracked windows. As landlord, James owned all of them, But being in arrears and ready to default, he had no plans to repair them or even to stay. As he dragged the trunk's dead weight into the dark gloom of House Number 6, happier than none of the neighbours had seen him, James closed the door and shuttered the windows to hide his crime. Only this wasn't a murder, but an adultery. James was a coward, plain and simple, who was no better at brutality than he was as a businessman. After the marriage, he wouldn't kill her. He would fleece her and then flee on a fast ship with his mistress, Sarah, and their son, leaving Hannah broke, alone, and tearful. That was James's plan. Only Hannah didn't know that. And neither did Sarah. Keen to spend Christmas Eve with the man they both loved. That evening, the two women met for the very first time. They argued, they cried, and according to James, being a little bit drunk, Hannah swung in a chair, fell backwards, hit her head on the fireplace, and out of blind panic, he disposed of the body. Of course, being a liar, her autopsy would tell a different story. Being seated at the time of the attack, with a cup of tea in her belly and no defensive wounds, Hannah was struck from behind with a heavy blunt object. With a force so hard, she headbutted the table. It snapped her nose, split her skull, and detached her right eye from its socket, so the ruptured eyeball dangled down the pale skin of her bleeding cheek. Conscious but dazed, as she steadied herself to sit upright, she saw two sights, her bloodied lap and James with a log. As across her swollen lumpen face, he struck again, fracturing both sides of her jaw as she slumped hard onto the cold stone floor. And as this grieving widow, loyal friend, and kindly godmother lay in a contorted heap, with her dreams now as shattered as the bones in her face, James slit her throat and stood as she rasped her last breath. A short while later, having stashed a few rusty tools in a hessian sack from the shop of Mr. Ward, the mangle maker, as he barked to Mr. and Mrs. Davis, the wedding's wedding's off. Hannah Brown was already dead. Across the snowy Christmas night, as joyous carols drifted on the foggy air, behind the dark shutters of Six Carpenters' Place, a young boy endlessly wailed at the sights he was seeing. As atop top of the table, with a fresh corpse below his knees, as the old rusty saw he had stolen was barely sharp enough to rip through muscle and sinew, but was too blunt to sever through her neck. Perching the corpse's head over the edge, his father, James, pressed and bent with all of his force, until her fifth vertebrae went snap. Crudely, her limbs were severed likewise, and quickly recovering from the shock of such a savage death, Sarah picked over the dead woman's belongings, like a famished vulture pecking at a rotting carcass. On Christmas Day, James bagged up the bits, the head in a silk handkerchief, the limbs in a tradesman's bag, and her torso in a brown hessian sack as at the base lay a scattering of wood shavings. On Boxing Day, he boarded a horse-drawn carriage bus with a blue tradesman's back and, in separate journeys, discarded the bits of his betrothed far across the city, with her limbs found in a field in Brixton, her severed head blocking the canal lock in Stepney, and her frozen torso, hidden behind a large paving stone, by the toll booth at Pineapple Gate. Having neither heard a peep from Hannah or James since Christmas Eve, believing she had either fled in shame, eloped in joy, or as she had originally planned, was living overseas, no one had reported her missing. So for the next few months, having preserved it in vinegar, the head of Hannah Brown was put on display... In a pickling jar at the Paddington workhouse. But no one was able to identify her. Not until three months later, when hearing word that this mysterious severed head had salt and pepper hair, short thick teeth, and a healed slit down her left earlobe. Although the bloodless skull was gaunt and deformed, William identified it as his sister And James Greenacre was arrested. On the evening of Sunday, the 24th of March 1837, Inspector George Feltham entered a rented lodging at 1 St Albans Place in Kennington, where he found James and Sarah in bed together. To their side were three large trunks stuffed full of the deceased woman's worldly possessions, a black silk cloak, a black boa, a distinctive white shawl, and of the pieces which they hadn't pawned off, was the gold pinchbeck pocket watch and a set of pearl drop earrings. The policeman's timing was very fortuitous, as having already booked a ship's passage, by the break of dawn, James, Sarah, and their son would have set sail for Canada, never to return. Upon his arrest, having become a media sensation, especially in the trashy penny dreadfuls, which lapped up every gory detail of the corpse's demise. Although James relished his newfound fame, like a coward, he stuck to his story that this was an accident, and he branded Hannah as a drunk, loose, and in debt. On the 10th of April, 1837, James Greenacre and Sarah Gale were tried at the Old Bailey, Sarah as an accessory after the fact, and James for willful murder, to which they both pleaded not guilty. But after a two-day trial, having deliberated for just two minutes, the jury returned a unanimous verdict of guilty. Sarah Gale was transported to Australia where she would live for the rest of her life. Whereas, on the 2nd of May, 1837, at Newgate Prison, at the hands of an equally sadistic executioner such as he, known as William Calcraft, James Greenacre entertained the Bain crowds with a dangle and an odd little dance at the end of a taut hemp rope, until, after six interminably long minutes, his feet Stopped twitching. His death was agonizingly slow. But for the greedy few who sold grisly memorabilia, it was profitable. But this story isn't his. Hannah Brown was a lovely lady with dreams of living the life which she truly deserved. She was strong, smart, and independent. She didn't need to marry, but she loved to be loved, so in her twilight years she knew she didn't wish to be alone. She thought that she would found the perfect man, a loving widower who was so similar to her in so many ways, but all he ever loved was her money. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening to Murder Mile. If you're not too grossed out by the grisly details of the scattered remains of Hannah Brown, there are lots more details which didn't make it into the episode, which I will share with you in the next installment of Extra Mile after the break, as well as some of the usual nonsense. Before that, a big thank you to my new Patreon supporter, who is Fiona Montgomery. I thank you very much. As well as a thank you to Selena Dean for your very kind donation via the e eShop. Plus a big thank you to everyone who has sent lovely messages saying about how much you enjoyed how to get away with murder. It was a much needed deviation from the usual murder Mile gloom, which I felt we all needed at the moment, given how crappy this year has been. So I'm glad that you liked it. Murdermal was research written and performed by myself with the main musical themes written and performed by Eric Stein and John Books of Cult With No Name. Thank you for listening, and sleep well. that is going to be an absolute shit house to edit lucky me yes oh god i overwrote that a lot of that is going to be coming out a lot of that is going to be coming out and edited and shit like that oh really oh i wrote it and i think i've overwritten it in places i made it a little bit too flowery and it's just getting really difficult to say and there was a lot of boats going past, and even though I'm surrounding myself with all my muffling stuff to kind of protect me from noises, oh, there's a van outside, and he he seems to love reversing, and it's going these vans going beep 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 beep. It's like every it's like it's like just park up your bloody van. It's like how difficult would it be to park you van? He's been at it for an hour, like going a bit forwards and beep beep beep. it's, oh, it's so annoying anyway um that's that hope you enjoyed that episode uh, something different i'm gonna i'm gonna make a quick uh, tea and then i'm gonna come back because there's lots we need to do right Oops. right i'd already prepped me water i'd already prepped everything so we can just power on uh There's a lot that we need to get through in this episode because there's a lot that I took out and there's probably a lot that I might edit out as well because that was a a bit of a longer episode than normal. So I'm just going to power on. tease on. I've got a donut over there, but let's do the questions and then we'll power on with the stuff that's missing from this episode. Right, so, oh, quick, quick, get down with it. Right, question number one, everyone, get ready. Question one. What was the name of the area in and around Maida Vale previously called... So mentioned at the start, before Maida Vale was built, what was it originally called? I mentioned it right right at the start. Ooh, exciting. Uh Question two. Name the toll booth Hannah's torso was found near. I've mentioned that a couple of times. Should be able to get there that on, that's easy. Question three. Which county was Hannah born in? Hmm. Question four. What did Hannah do as a job? Question five. Where did, where did James Greenacre... Oh, uh, question five. Where did James Greenacre say he had a farm? Uh, it, it, I was going to give away a clue then. Uh, just name the place. Not the country, the place. Question six. What church had they planned to marry in? Question seven. What pub... Next to the church, I almost gave it away then, uh, were they to have their pre- and post-wedding drinks at? Mmm, I've had many pints in that pub. Still there today. Question eight. What did Mr Ward build for Hannah? Nice easy question, that one. Question nine. Where was his carpentry shop? Uh, I named the street. And question ten. What type of pocket watch did Hannah own? Hmm, it's a bugger to say at the end. Right, let's whiz through some stuff, because there's stuff to do with the murder that I probably didn't mention. So, um, James Greenacre, uh, when he was finally arrested, he actually did give a statement to the police. Um, And throughout it, he kind of blamed Hannah throughout all of this. So, I'm going to whiz through what he said. Uh, He said, there have been many, many direct falsehoods given. Uh, Hang on. Uh, Ah... He, he said that uh, uh, she came over to his house, obviously, at uh, uh, Carpenter's Place. Uh, uh, he said that, uh, I found that she was a loose woman, which we all know is not true. Uh, she had put up two silk gowns under his name at the tally shop. That's the pawn shop. That's entirely a lie as well. Obviously, as we all know, she's got money. Uh, she said, uh, he said, he said, oh, well, there's duplicity on both sides, meaning he was partly to blame as well. He's fully to blame on this. Um At this time, interestingly, he says, um, I had this female lodging in the room, in the house, uh, when uh, Hannah came over. Um, Hang on, tea's almost up. Tea is up. Pop that in there. Get that in a second. Interestingly, when, when they were questioned... Uh, James said that Sarah Gale, his mistress, uh, was actually a lodger in the flat. Uh, That All she was there, she just washed and cooked for him, that was all. He'd given her notice to leave that day. Actually, what he'd done is he tried to get rid of her, uh, to say, don't come round over Christmas, I'll come round to see you, because actually he was expecting Hannah Brown to come round to his place. He didn't expect both women to be in the house at the same time. But when arrested by the police, he denied that him and Sarah were in a relationship together, what he said was, this is just my lodger, and I'd asked her to leave at that time. Um he also said that uh Hannah Brown, uh, on the coach on the way down, uh, that uh she'd been drinking. Not true. Uh she was getting fresh with the coachman, which is entirely unlike her. As you've heard, Hannah was absolutely lovely. Uh it is true she had, had some rum that night, according to the autopsy, but I can explain that very shortly. Um it everything seems to have gone wrong it seems to have been that she, uh, he knew that she had a, between 3 to 400 pounds which is a hell of a lot of money especially back then um but it seems to have gone sour so either she had it in a way that he couldn't get her or she found out uh, about uh Sarah Gale his mistress at the same time and that kind of caused a bit of an argument uh which could be the reason why Uh, Hannah Brown was drinking some rum that night. Um, As mentioned in the story, what he says happens, he says there wasn't an argument that went on at at all. Uh, What happened was she was, he says, she was reeling back and forth on her chair, uh, which was on the swing. Um, I must, his exact words, he say, I must say that I put my foot onto the chair, meaning he kicked it a bit. She went backwards. Apparently she hit her head on a piece of wood on the fireplace and that rendered her unconscious. Uh, at the trial this went on for ages this this case file is with uh is in the national Ar- not national archives the old bailey and it's huge it goes on for ages and they spend hours going through a plan of the house trying to work out where the chair was how whether she would have fell backwards how she would have hit her head whether it was feasible that she was you know uh hitting her head would have rendered her unconscious uh things like that but that it's interesting there's the walls of the houses between because their tenement houses were very thin. Everyone said if someone's having a conversation, you can hear each other. Uh, but no one heard any argument or anything like that. So it's more than likely that, uh, as it, as he's kind of said in the story, she was sitting there. Hannah was sitting there having a cup of tea. Um, James hit her behind the back of the head, as mentioned. Uh, and then he slit her throat. What an absolutely lovely man uh, he was. As mentioned in this as well, uh, Sarah Gale was there. She wasn't meant to be there Christmas Eve, but she did turn up. She turned up there with her son, her four-year-old son, who was fathered by James as well. Um... The neighbours said, all the neighbours on Carpenter Place said that the the windows and doors, the shutters on the windows were closed. There was no lights on for literally three or four days over Christmas, which was unusual. And they said that the child was violently crying all the time. It was constantly crying. And you can imagine that as well if, you know, you've, you're a four year old child and in the house is a woman who's dead. It's only it's only a two roomed house. Uh, There's nowhere else they can go. There's no inside bathroom. There's an outside bathroom, which everyone shares. Obviously, he couldn't use that. So we had to do all the dismemberment in the front parlor with the window shut. The child would have seen that. Absolutely horrified and traumatized. Uh, But none of the neighbors really heard anything about it. They said that they saw James going back and forth quite a few times uh and he was carrying uh what they called a, a merino bag it was kind of like a tradesman's bag it was blue uh, a lot of tradesmen carried it. it's quite big so it seems as if he did a lot of traveling back and forth with the body body parts that he chopped up um We've got more on the autopsy coming up, so I'll read some more on that. Uh, Trying to get the exact dates and times of when things happened is really difficult because he kind of lied a lot. Sarah said she didn't see anything, which she did. The child couldn't give any evidence and the neighbours couldn't give evidence. So um, you have to use a lot of the the evidence within the autopsy to try and work out when she was murdered, how she was murdered and uh, at what point she was dismembered. Uh, So... Uh, oh, I'm going to grab my tea. Oh, exciting. Oh, tea time. Oh, who doesn't love a good cup of tea? Right. I was just literally about to talk about a head being dismembered. Uh, right. I'm guessing, I'm guessing this is Earl Grey. It looks, either I've made a very pale tea, or oh, it's Earl Grey. I hope it's Earl Grey. Love, love an Earl Grey. Right, um, so as mentioned uh, uh, he he uh, dismembered the the limbs and the head um he wrapped the head in a large silk handkerchief so it was big enough then he put it inside the uh blue uh, merino bag and then he got onto what they call an omnibus. Uh, an omnibus is basically uh the 18th century equivalent of a large bus except it's horse drawn so instead of a, a regular carriage that can hold like 20 30 people um uh, yes i had to look that up as well uh so we got on the omnibus from south london he went over the thames um and then he headed to all the different places so uh, I'll, I'll explain i was going to do a whole sec this uh, part of this i was thinking about turning this into a two parter but i felt we covered a lot of the story but, but only because there's a lot of really good details about the rest of the body. So, um as mentioned at the start, uh on Wednesday the twenty eighth of December nineteen thirty six, uh at about half about two o'clock in the afternoon, um there was a, a gentleman, uh, called Robert Bond, who was a, a a um I was gonna say burglar, then a builder, um I almost gave away the name of the area as well this quiz is really bloody annoying me anyway as mentioned over over uh he found the torso behind the paving slab he called the police um they the they said there was very little blood inside the body um it was inside the bag it'd been put behind the uh paving slab and what they they noticed on the floor was that there was a small pool of blood around it but that had frozen already so that does suggest that um The body had kind of uh, probably been put there uh, not long after it had been dismembered. So uh, uh, there was a gentleman called really good name. I almost used it in the story, but I took out uh, Ezekiel Dickens. What a fantastic name uh he was there now he was one of the builders who was there on christmas eve they were working right up to christmas eve uh he was the one he said he put the paving slab there it was kind of a, a marker for him to tell him which part of the path he'd he'd been working on and where he needed to come back to um which was fine but the, he said there was nothing behind that on christmas eve so when it was uh wednesday the 28th uh there was a body behind it but uh, a little pool of blood underneath had frozen so they knew it had bled a little bit uh so w- when it was put there it was still you know, able to bleed by that point the uh, torso was uh as mentioned i didn't give this say this too much in the story but obviously they knew where the hessian bag had come from um obviously there's lots of hessian bags but um uh, there was a gentleman who worked for the mangle maker um uh, his name was Thomas Higgins. I haven't put him in the story. He said he knew this sack. He was... Because uh, when the mangle is being made, obviously you're shaving it with a plane and there's little pieces of wood that come off. And instead of just binning it, what they would do is... you know? Because it's decent, decent wood. I think they said it was... Uh, here it is, yeah. It was birch, and African mahogany, which they used to make a mangle. So when they would shave it, little shavings would come off, they would plane it, they'd keep those, put them in bags, and lots of people would kind of use them to burn because they make you know they make really good kindling. Uh so what you could do, you could order it, Thomas would turn up with a nice big sack, a big Hessian sack full of uh this kindling drop it off and then he'd take the sack back with him um in order to tie it at the end with the cord he'd made he made these very specific holes at the top so he knew exactly that it was his bag and because the uh, the uh planed or oh, birch at the bottom was uh, it was easily identifiable as having come from that particular uh mangle maker um don't forget these are kind of familiar trades back then obviously people making mangles now we probably never hear of it but back then that'd be quite a familiar thing so people people would have looked at it and gone oh okay that makes sense oh what else do we have um there there are points where um James Greenacre after the murder as well tries to kind of put in a little bit of an alibi in there so as mentioned on Christmas Eve he bumped into uh, Mr and Mrs Davies and they went "Uh, the wedding's off oh yeah no she's a she's a drunk and she's lost me a lot of money and it's all off she's disappeared she's upset right and then he kind of vanished Uh, he actually spoke to them separately but I, I put them together Uh, just because it it speeded up the story it just made it a bit more convenient no point people just saying the same things one after the other Uh, but on the 27th of december so around the time it was disposing of some of the body parts as well he went to mrs blanchard Uh, who was a good friend of Hannah's, uh, to tell her that, you know, everything had gone south, that she'd disappeared. Uh, He wasn't worried about it. It's just they'd split up and she was quite embarrassed about herself. But what she didn't... What James didn't realise is that the, the person who was the broker to Mrs Blanchard was obviously William Gay. And William Gay is hannah's brother and he never knew that and literally when when james got there and uh, this was at 10 Gooch play good street so literally just around the corner from hannah's house he was there going oh yeah hannah this hannah that she was there and then mrs blanchard went oh well this is mrs brown's brother why why didn't you come in and talk to him and then all of a sudden he was like oh uh no oh I'm a bit busy sorry gotta go he apparently he got all flustered and ran off um but obviously there's a bit of a a dispute. We don't know what the dispute is between Hannah and her brother William. So we don't know what that is about. But uh, it did happen, and that's one of the reasons why. Obviously, he didn't go to the police. He never. They they literally live like a street apart, but they never spoke to each other. Um, on New Year's Eve, uh, eighteen thirty six. So just after the head, uh, just after the torso was found uh, at the White Lion Inn on Edgware Road, which no longer exists, there was a public inquiry held. Uh, and the verdict was willful murder against some person or persons unknown because obviously they'd only found the um the torso and they didn't they knew it was a woman's so they didn't know who she was so they had to leave it at that but that was the inquiry um on the 6th of January 1837 so literally like about 10 days later um, if if you go uh, on my uh, Patreon account, uh, there is some little videos on there. So I, I actually went over to Stepney and filmed this one. Um, so over at Johnson's Lock, which is uh, over in Stepney, uh, over in Mile End, uh, it, it looks identical. as is today? It's the the lock is basically the same construction as it was back then. Uh, there, apparently that day there was a bargeman called Berkman Bob who was uh, obviously comes from Berkhamstead, that's on the the Grand Union Canal. Uh he was there, he was trying to close the lock gates at Johnson's Lock and it just wouldn't close. Uh so what he got was a hitching pole, which is a long pole with a hook on the top, which a lot of us boaters have on the top for removing obstructions. He put it down into the water and when he pulled it back up, he found that there was a woman's head on the head literally on it with one eye missing. Uh and obviously, obviously, this gave them a, a, a right old shit up. Um, Matthias Ralph, who was the lock keeper of the Regent's Canal at the time, uh, he said that was about half a state in the morning. Um, immediately, what uh, uh, at the start, because they couldn't open the lock, they thought it was a dead dog, which is why they were prodding in, in the water and they really weren't that bothered. They thought it's probably just some junk or something. Uh, but they looked at it it was horrible they noticed that the ear was torn as well the eye was missing uh, it was in a really horrible state if you can imagine it had been in the water for about 10 days as well uh he wrapped it up in an old piece of sack uh and then he he called the police uh and then it was taken to uh it's taken to mile end workhouse uh where the autopsy was done so mr john Burtwistle, i'm gonna have a little slurp of tea let's see if it was old gray it was old gray or was it you Know what? I don't know what that tea is, it's, it, it might be all grey, but I'm not too sure. Um, so the surgeon there was Mr. John Bertwistle, he examined it uh, in Stepney Churchyard that's where it originally was taken. Uh, he saw that it had, it had a right uh, injury to the right eye, the uh, eye was kind of dangling down, it'd been um, entirely ruptured. There was a massive black eye around it as well. Um, Hannah had several lacerations to her face. Uh, kind of a crescent like shape uh, around her cheek uh both sides of her jaw were broken uh, there was a big kind of gash to the back of her head where the blow would have been first and as just mentioned one across her cheek as well um what else did we have uh he saw that she'd been uh, entirely decapitated um even though james says in his story that she'd fell backwards and hit her head um it was clear when they were looking they could they could saw see a second incision so even though she'd been decapitated they could see that he she'd he'd slit her throat first and then uh lower than that he'd decapitated her as well so kind of uh the fifth level of the fifth vertebrae uh obviously he tried to saw through her the the saw wasn't particularly good it only got it got through like the skin and the the the, uh, the muscle and things like that but when it got part way through the the uh, vertebrae it just wouldn't go through the sword just wasn't strong enough it was it just kept struggling uh so that's when obviously he had to use his full force on the body and the head to snap it and break it off lovely what a ple- what a pleasant man um it is said that um she was still warm when the decapitation took place so uh obviously this happened not long afterwards uh although they they do believe that she was still alive when her throat was cut so that probably what was killed her um but obviously you know having your throat cut she would have died pretty quickly after that probably within a, a minute or so um there was a second autopsy held as mentioned at the Paddington workhouse uh it's i've put a little map on the road uh the paddington workhouse was actually just off the uh canal just off to the side of little venice by harrow road um is quite quite interesting i never knew that it was there um what else do we have yep uh so that was a second autopsy they pretty much confirmed what happened only there they were able to say yep the neck was definitely slit first and then she was decapitated which makes sense uh, they checked her stomach. She had some un- undigested food in there. So it's likely that she had a, had a meal at James's uh, James's place, which makes sense. She was going to stay there for a bit. And then that evening, she was going to stay with Catherine Glass to stay there the night before. And then in the morning, put on a wedding dress, you know, as tradition states. Uh, they said that in her stomach, she had a quantity of meat, which they guessed with either pork or beef, uh, some potatoes and pastry. Oh. Oh, a nice bit of pastry. Lovely. Um, Now, they also said that she had a quantity of fluid. She had tea in there, but also possibly they said something smelled uh, spiritorious. It was either whiskey or rum. So I'm guessing that either because it was Christmas, uh, she was uh, doing what she normally didn't do. And she decided to have a little bit of a drink. We all do that. I never drink on duty. Or maybe she had been told something bad by James that, you know, maybe she'd found out that James had... A mistress and maybe she was upset so um but it's the, they couldn't say how much alcohol she had but you know it's unlikely that she, that she was heavily drunk um not mentioned in the story but on the 17th of january so this is uh this is obviously about three weeks after the murder uh james and sarah had began preparing the house to be let out so six carpenters uh, place Obviously, they dismembered the body in there. What they did, uh, they went in there. They entirely cleaned the house. It got wooden floors. um, They scrubbed all the floors. They'd fumigated it using uh, brimstone, which was kind of their way of doing it. So it's got quite a caustic smell, but it kind of gets rid of everything. Uh, The fireplace had been barricaded up in the front room. Uh, what else did they say? They'd, they'd taken up some of the floorboards as well. It looks like some of the floorboards were actually so blood soaked that they had to find a way to get rid of some of them. So it looked like they burnt them. Um, some of the neighbors were looking around because they were looking at moving in. They, you know, they had a good look around. They did. They, they didn't see anything suspicious, but they did say it was very, it was very dark in there and very shut. And on, as mentioned, on those days, a lot of people said that the shutters were closed. Uh, and there were no lights on one lady did actually see one day there was uh Sarah was outside with her her son who was screaming his head off he was obviously because he'd just seen a woman being hacked to pieces horrible um uh, and uh, she, uh Sarah had taken the child outside to, to kind of calm him down, and they saw inside that uh William was in there Sorry uh not william uh what's the name of the man james i forgot his bloody name james was in there the light on and james quickly closed the door so they didn't get to see any more um also around the same time as well this is when they seem to have moved out of there was the 17th of january um they'd packed up all the stuffs onto a cart And James and Sarah were kind of moving out and heading away. They'd they'd cleaned everything out. They'd taken all the trunks that belonged to Hannah with them. Uh, And as they were heading... Where did they head to? They were heading up towards Elephant and Castle. Um, Here we are. So um, they were heading up. As they got to a pawnbroker's owned by Joseph Knowles on Bolingbroke Road, which is in Woolworth, um, James told Hannah to go in there with some stuff that she'd got uh, to sell it off. Uh, she uh, gave in a pair of shoes, two veils and a handkerchief, obviously a silk handkerchief, uh, for which she could get good money for that. Uh, and Sarah gave the name of Mary Stevens, 9 East Lane Woolworth, which is obviously a lie. Uh, they know this because they, they were each given the pawnbroker's ticket. Um, so they, they're trying to sell off as many things as possible. Uh, Didn't mention this in the story. Well, I I briefly mentioned it in the story. But on Thursday, the 2nd of February, so that is, what, six weeks later? That's where they found the feet. Um, So uh, by the railway bridge, if you go into Brixton and you go over the railway bridges, so on heading out into town between Shakespeare Road and Hinton Road, uh, there... Back in the uh, early eighteen hundreds, there used to be kind of a. Uh, it used to be big fields down that way, and Mister Tenpenny's field. In there, they found another large Hessian sack, which was filled with human thighs and legs. Um, obviously, this was taken to Paddington Police Station, and that too also contained mahogany shavings. So, as mentioned before. Um, it was actually a, a man called James Page, not J- Jimmy Page from uh, Led Zeppelin. Although you never know, he he looks old. He could be old enough. Uh, and they were kind of down near Cold Harbour Lane, so it's in that area, not far from Camberwell. And they just found the sack in the bushes. Uh, there was a big hole in it. They opened it up, and the first thing he said he saw was he saw a part of a knee. uh Lovely. That's exactly what you want to find when you're on a nice little walk. A policeman walked by, grabbed him, and said, "Hey, man, look." There's some uh, there's some limbs here. They took it straight to the police station. So now, at this point, they've got the head uh, and they've got the, um, the, the torso and the limbs. But they still don't know who this woman is. Um, so, around the 20th of March, 1837, so as mentioned, this is three months later, uh, William Gay, who was Hannah's brother, read the news reports of a head found. Obviously, his sister's been missing since just before Christmas Day. He read that the ear on the left, uh, his left earlobe was torn. And he was convinced that this was his sister. Uh, he, She was, as mentioned, she was meant to have married James Greenacre, but she never did. It all went south and everything went went really weird. Now, he knew that a head was being uh, preserved in a pickling jar and was on display at uh, Paddington Workhouse. So he was like, right, great. Well, he obviously didn't say great because that would have been horrible. But he was like, OK. Uh, so we applied to Mr Thornton, the church warden of the parish of uh, Paddington, for permission to inspect uh, the remains of the woman's head, and when he got there, saw the pickling jar, uh, is you can appreciate, it's been there for three months, it's probably in a bad way, it had no uh blood in it, it was quite saggy, uh, obviously it's missing an eye, but he could tell by the hair that it was her, he could tell by the, t- the tearing in the ear that it was her. her, her teeth as well, her teeth were quite short um, and thick and prominent, it took me ages to work out what people were talking about because in all of the statements people go oh we knew it was her because of her teeth and it's like okay what do you mean what do you mean you can't just say because of her teeth how and it took i took eight about about a week of going through statements to work out that uh, her teeth were short and thick but slightly prominent at the front so uh that's how they knew exactly it was her but also the tear as well um because of that they were like okay who's the prime suspect the prime suspect was the man she was meant to marry uh but obviously uh didn't uh they went to the carpenter's buildings uh, uh carpenter's place over at uh, camberwell where james lived and they said uh where is he He seems to have dif- disappeared and everyone went oh he's probably with his wife uh who was sarah uh, even though her name was Sarah Gale, everyone called her Sarah Greenacre. They pretended they were husband and wife, and someone there knew that Sarah had uh, talked about getting a flat or or a lodging at in Alban's place in Lambeth, not too far away. It's on the Kennington Road. Um, so literally, it was nice and easy. They they the police really didn't have to do much. They applied for a uh, uh, a warrant. Uh, Inspector George Felton turned up. He's of T Division of the police there's loads i can really say about this i'm not going to say too much because we've kind of already done it but then he basically basically just knocks on the door and goes greenacre and greenacre goes what do you want he goes uh i want to speak to you with with you open the door he comes in and basically says "Uh, i suspect you of murdering uh hannah brown uh, both James and Sarah tried to hide the fact that they got things on them that, that belonged to Hannah at the time. They did. In fact, James denied at the start that he even knew Hannah Brown. He was like, I don't know anything about her. And then he was like, oh, yeah, you no, know, we were meant to get married, but no, it, it didn't happen. And then he was trying to hide the fact that he'd got a watch on him. Um, as he was trying to dress, He was. Uh, Sarah was trying to hide the fact that she'd got rings on her finger that actually belonged to Hannah as well. Uh, but obviously in that room was the, the trunks that were there, some of her clothes, and the pawnbroker's tickets for the stuff that which had been sold off. Uh, as well as, as mentioned, the silk cloak, the shawl, which everyone everyone who mentions it goes, she had a really long, elegant silk cloak and a, a, a white shawl with a very specific pattern. Everyone mentioned the pattern. Uh, but she had lots of stuff. Everyone was turning up going, oh, I recognise that. Uh, so, uh, James Greenacre... Uh, was taken to Paddington Police Station. If you live in Paddington, it's not that Paddington Police Station, the one at Paddington Green. It's on Hermitage Street, which is just off the canal. Trust me, it took me about a week to find that information because uh, it was where the old police station was as well. There's some new horrible flats there now. Uh, when James was uh, had been uh, arrested... Uh, PC Michael Brown visited him at the cells that night at about 25 minutes to midnight and he found he actually found James lying on his back with a silk handkerchief tied as a, tied into a noose around his left foot and the other part tied around his neck so he was actually uh, forcing his foot and his uh, and his neck apart so he would strangle himself it's kind of his way of killing himself he almost killed himself the police came in saved him um uh and managed to save managed to save him from dying uh da, 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 da. but uh obviously he as mentioned he became James became a real media sensation when people found out that he was there and he'd been the person who cut up you know Hannah Brown and blah, 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 all into pieces people all across london were really excited by that and some of the police were actually charging people to come and have a look at, at uh, um at uh, James Greenacre uh do you know he even signed autographs as well it's a bit bit nasty um just gonna skimp over this bit oh i think that's it i think that was everything yeah uh james greenacre has mentioned he gave a statement there and it was all bollocks it was all bollocks he was just blaming her for everything uh sarah gale said very little she said i have nothing to say i know nothing about it I was not at Camberwell at the time, which was lies. Those two rings, which were found on her finger, was taken from me. Um, uh, she said that her little boy had found them whilst, she, whilst digging in the garden. It was all bollocks. Uh, they were all on it. Uh, the eardrop uh, of pearly rings had been given to her seven or eight years ago. Um, same with the shoes that she'd sold at the um, pawnbrokers as well. So it was a complete lie. So when it actually got to court it was pretty simple even though they'd all said you know uh not guilty your honor to to everything the even though there was no witnesses to the murder and no witnesses to the dismemberment there was enough evidence there to be able to say okay yeah they definitely did do this so uh it was nice and simple that was that Whew, that was a lot of information there i could that could have been an extra episode but i just thought i just thought uh, the only bit i really found that would be interesting was the finding the head in the lock, but, you know, we kind of already covered that anyway. So let's answer the questions if I can... Ugh, I'm scrolling up trying to find these bloody questions. Right, whoa, cover tea. Exhausting. Ugh, I still can't tell what kind of tea that is. It's something. It's wet. Um, right. Uh, question number one. What was the area in and around Maida Vale previously called... It was Tibernia which is where we get because uh, the, the Tyburn is the river that goes through that area uh, and that is why we call it uh, the Tyburn Gallows or the, the Tyburn Tree which is where in Marble Arch where the executions were. Question 2 Name the toll booth Hannah's torso was found near That was Pineapple Gate That's a real bugger to find because it doesn't exist anymore. It's definitely on the Edgware Road. According to the details, it seems to be near the Maida Hill Tunnel. Um, Some people say it was over near Sutherland Avenue, but it wasn't. It seems to be near Randolph Avenue, but um, yeah, it doesn't seem to exist anymore. I've searched, I've tried, I've, I've searched through all the. Uh, the the street names are where they've changed and checked old maps. It's it seems to be tiny and it's not listed, which is a shame. Anyway, that's as near as we can get. Uh, question three: What county was Hannah born in? That was Norfolk. Question four: What did Hannah do as a job? She was a washerwoman. Question five. Where did where did James Greenacre say he had a farm? That was Hudson Bay. Question six. What church had they planned to marry in? That was St Giles in the Fields Church, just on uh, Denmark Street. If you come on my tour, that's pretty much where we start. Uh, question seven. What pub next to St Giles Church were they planning to have their pre and post drinks in? That was the Angel on St. Giles High Street. Uh, If you're there now, it's immediately opposite the Google Maps buildings. Uh, And interestingly, we return back to that building next week, on next week's Murder Mile. Uh, Episode 8. Episode 8? What am I talking about? Uh, Question 8. What did Mr. Ward build for Hannah? Nice easy one. That was a mangle. Question 9. Where was Mr. Ward's carpentry shop? That was on Cheney Street, which is just off Tottenham Court Road. And it's literally the next street over from the Horseshoe Brewery where the beer flood happened in 1814. Uh, so it's, there is a likelihood that Hannah was probably there when the beer flood, flood happened. Or, you know, nearby, not there. Uh, question 10. What type of pocket watch did Hannah own? It was known as a pinchbeck oh lummy that's that 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 Why right, that's taken too bloody long that was exhausting i'm looking forward to uh oh. as you oh, always you can tell this is wednesday afternoon not thursday morning i'm trying to get myself ahead because it's trying to you know uh we've well, got grand grandma's funeral coming up and we're going to bury mum's ashes at the same time and i'm trying to sort out of all grand's paperwork and it's oh i'm trying to get myself a day ahead at least so i could just sit and do stuff so that's why i'm recording on thursday, uh, thursday afternoon rather than uh th- wednesday afternoon rather than thursday morning it's all confusing anyway that's that right i hope you enjoyed that episode uh, that was an odd one, uh, we've got an interesting one next week, they're all interesting coming up, so I hope you enjoy them, uh, uh, stay safe at the moment, be good, be healthy, enjoy life as we say, do you know, have fun, life is a bit shit for everyone at the moment, so do you know what, just en- enjoy life as much as you can, uh, and if 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 difficult things get in your way, just find a way through them, you know, anyway, uh, that's it, Speak to you all soon. Have yourself a good week. Lots of love. Bye bye.
1: How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvoderm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvoderm Voluma XC.